We are live. Chris, how's it going? Howdy. How's it going? Going well. Yeah. How you doing? I'm doing good. Doing good. Got got all situated here. It was very nice to just go. Am I the only one seeing the Teletubby background there, or, or does everyone see that? Nope, that's just you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I can I like show it. it real quick. There's the Teletubby background. Um, but yeah, that's just what you get to see. And I suppose we start this by just what I wanted to talk about today. There was a conversation that came up recently about heat treating in BMX, so I thought you'd be a perfect person to talk about that. But before we actually get to the different aspects of heat treating, I wanted to ask about the post that you made on Instagram today, just talking about uh, responsibilities and whatnot and you taking those over. Oh, Melissa's wave that came crashing down? Yeah, that. Uh, Well, I mean, not much is going to change, to be honest. I think she's just had it with... uh, kind of being the last person in line to uh, explain to me who's doing what and why they're getting paid what they're getting paid. Mm-hmm. So uh, she basically just said, hey, you know what? You, you deal with it. Um, and she's going to continue doing what she likes to do, which is creative stuff and uh, content stuff, cool projects things like that. And as far as keeping tabs on everybody, she's just kind of putting the ball uh, back in my court, which uh, I don't blame her. It's no fun. It's not her fault if people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And I've always had sort of a, a middle person there to help me with that because to be honest, it's just not pleasant. So, you know, back in the early days, um, I would do that myself, but there really wasn't much compensation happening in the early days. Mm -hmm. So anything that anybody did that helped S&M was great. Um, But there wasn't a whole lot of expectation for anybody. And then as the business started to grow a little bit, the expectations started to grow and what people were getting as compensation started to grow. So then, you know, it became a little bit more necessary for somebody to track what everybody was doing. And then when things really started to, you know, grow back in, geez, I guess the mid nineties, you know, I always had a guy, Chris Stevenson was good at it. Uh, we had, you know, Sean McKinney would help with stuff like that. I had a lot of guys through the years that would kind of be the middle person between myself and the writers mm-hmm. and other, uh, you know, subcontractors that were doing marketing type stuff. And then obviously through the 2000s up until 2009 or 10, I always had Morales was like my right-hand guy and he was really good at that. Um, and then when he left in 2010, some of that stuff fell back on me. I've had John Paul Rogers was in there, you know, helping with that through the kind of please kill me era. So there's always been somebody in that kind of middle role between me and, and the writers, or like I said, marketing subcontractors, whether that be graphic artists or, uh, video editors, filmers, uh, guys driving the van, team managers, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And Melissa's been doing that now for pretty darn close to 15 years. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, just through working with her directly, she does a lot. Yeah, and she and, and don't get me wrong, she loves working with you. And you know, she loves working with everybody that she's working with. It's really just me that's the problem because I'm the one that's, you know, I don't I don't have time to call 20 people and ask them what they did this month. Yeah. So I'm asking her what they did this month. And I think she's basically saying, hey, you should call them yourself. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that being said, that's great because, yeah, now I got to, you know, I got to get my hands dirty. Now, unfortunately, I'm just not as good of a people person as she is, you know. So I sometimes her conversation might be an hour with yeah. somebody i'm gonna try and get that conversation done in five minutes yeah and yeah. that just you know i'm a 52 year old man and i've been in this business for 30 almost 36 years yeah you so know i don't know if doing. i want to you know get on the phone for an hour when all, all i'm trying to do is ask somebody if they rode their bike this month mm-hmm. and if they did where can i see it and did they help us sell anything yep and I don't, and I'm not trying to be mean, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to get it done as quickly as possible so that, you know, they can go back to riding their bike. Oh yeah. And I mean, if you have to call 20 different people and you take an I'm hour kidding, for each man. person. And, and keep in mind, these are like friends too. So you call them and you basically are just trying to get down to, uh, the nuts and bolts of, of what happened this month and did they do anything? But because you're friends, the, the tangents, you know, you get on these tangents and next thing you know, it's a, a, you've been on the phone for an hour. Yep. And that's 20 hours between 20 people. That's, that's days. Yeah. It's maddening. Yeah. And you're like, man, I love that guy, but I can't talk to everybody for an hour. So you're, you know, I've been lucky to have her kind of in that, in that role. And honestly, she's been really good at it. Um, but she's going to continue to do the stuff that she's really, really good at, which you know, which you, you're aware of because you've been working mm-hmm. with her now for a bit. Yep. Um, and then you know we'll see. But uh, yeah, and it's gotten a little bit tiring too, you know, or a little bit old for her to get to just be slandered all the time, which is kind of rough because you're talking about not only is she like a coworker of mine, she's you know she's my wife, obviously, and man. These guys are rough. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess if I could give a little two cents on that, just based on my personal experience, it's been the easiest, most most professional, smooth experience in doing anything. There's always consideration for time and everything like that. It's like, I don't know. It's just been very, very nice. You're you're speaking about working with Melissa. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Personally, I, I I have the same experience too, but I don't know what happens. Sometimes it just goes sideways. I mean, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess that's that's just life. I I don't know. Yeah. But, but I, I will I'll tell you what it's um, it's brutal. 
when you read some of these, you know, comments and things that people say and, and watching her have to deal with them and it's, it's rough, man. I, uh, I had a good conversation with Tom and Tina, you know, at empire the other day. And, you know, I've been friends with them for a long time and empire just, you know, celebrated 20 years of business. Congratulations empire. And, you know, I worked with Tina's mom before empire started up Tina's mom owned trend and I started selling it to trend in in Austin, you know, a long time ago, back, back probably 1990, maybe 88. And so I've known Tina since she was, you know, real little and she's real involved in the empire business, but she's kind of behind the scenes a little bit and you never really see anybody slander her or get angry with her or anything like that publicly. And I, I just asked him, I was on the phone with Tom Antti and I asked him the other day, I was like, why do you think that is? And, you know, I think they're the reason why they think that probably is, is that Empire's a small bike shop business. You know, they help out their team. They do as much as they can for all their riders, but there's really, it's not like a paycheck situation. Um, and then, and then on our side of things, sometimes people think it's like a giant corporation and they're going to, you know, make this huge payday. And then the people come on board for the wrong reasons. And then, you know, tempers flare and then they lash out when they don't get what they want. And, and they don't have that problem over at Empire very often because when people come on board with Empire, they come on for the right reasons. And that's because they love the business. They love Tom. They love Tina. And they just want to be a part of a really cool thing. Yeah. So we've kind of created this. We create these problems for ourselves and we take chances. And Melissa, especially, will take chances on people where sometimes I'm even very uh, apprehensive. And she does it anyway. You know, like Brad Sims, for instance. She took a big chance with Brad Sims because she really believed in what he was doing. And then, man, did that one go sideways. Right, right. Which, I mean, but, naturally is going to happen. But here's the thing. You don't want to stop. You don't want to lose the passion for the business. And you don't want to lose the motivation for taking a chance on guys or, or gals, for that matter, that uh, may seem risky. But the more you get lashed out at publicly and called names, <laughs> the more you know jaded you become and the less you want to take a chance on somebody. But I really fight that because if you were to do that, you wouldn't take on a Troy McMurray. You wouldn't take on a Mike Hoder. Yep. You wouldn't take on some of the best people out there. But then again, you wouldn't get bashed when it goes sideways with a Nick Bonnell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, naturally, stuff like that's going to happen when you're taking chances with people, and I can understand why uh, why she would get a little bit worn on it after 15 years. Yeah, 15 years for her. I mean, 35 for me. Yeah. Um, I get my feelings. Maybe you know, uh, I wouldn't say I'm gonna take that back. I wouldn't say I get my feelings hurt. I just kind of shake it off, uh, and I'm, I'm never. I n it never ceases to amaze me how things go goofy. 
Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it's it's just so lopsided. It's so bizarre. I can't even you know take that Nick Bonnell thing. Nick Bonnell is a flow guy on fit. Melissa's trying to work with him so that his we can kind of bring his profile up and get him out there so people get to know him. I mean, clearly they already know he's an insane writer, but they want we want people to get to know him and kind of elevate his profile and then hopefully move him towards being a pro on the team. Things aren't happening fast enough for him, so he quits, mm-hmm. which is a bummer, but he quits. And then, you know, we start trying to move some other guys up, and then he lashes out at us on social media because, um, you know, we're moving other guys up and not him. Well, he quit. Yeah. So come on. You know, now you're lashing out at a uh, – a, a woman, you know, a, a mom, a wife, and a, a business owner who was just trying to help you out. Right. You know, and I'm not going to lie. This is this kind of stuff, like, makes some people emotional. Oh, yeah. It's hard not to, you know? Right. So, anyway, I think it's just one of those things where there's certain things that she does with the business that she really enjoys and then there's some things that just kind of leave the door wide open to just be you know publicly bashed so she's just over those and she's gonna let me handle those nice and clearly you know what you're doing so (laughs) (laughs) i somebody commented though they they said boy it sounds like there might be a lot of no's coming you know and yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, the thing is, is like Melissa's got so much cool stuff happening. And, you know, she's working with like with uh, Trina, you know, uh, Ria's mom. Mm-hmm. She works with uh, like Mike Hallahan, and she she has these conversations with people. I'm not kidding you. They, they go on for hours, and just parents of kids that were flowing stuff too that are seven, eight years old, six years old in one case. She's working on all this stuff, bringing all these people up, dealing with all these parents. I cannot deal with that. Yeah. I look at what she's doing, and I love what she's doing with these people, but I don't have the time to do it, and I, I just – I don't want to stop doing all the stuff that she's doing. I just uh, – I need her to be able to focus on that kind of stuff, and then as far as things that are already set up and in place, people that are already working with us and getting paid, then I'll just have to, you know, kind of get more involved in that. But I, I think it'll, I think it'll go fine. We're not losing her. We're just losing that one particular part of the process where I ask her what in the world people are doing. Yeah, totally fair. So I think maybe that covers that subject pretty well. I think so. I mean, it's basically for me, again, it's so weird to, it is weird to mention stuff like that on my personal Instagram, especially since it's private, but everybody that I need to talk to is following me, I would assume, mm-hmm. if not to be, um, and then uh, it just is going to save me a lot of time. I, so I don't have to call, again, I don't have to call 20, 30 people. Right. Right. Totally so basically, you know, if, if it's money related, most likely you just get a hold of me and then uh, you know everything else is business as usual and then when you do get upset for whatever reason just bash me you know don't just don't bash her because it really ruins her day she gets emotional then it then it 
you know, it's hard for her to be a mom and deal with all of her other stuff and be in a good mood and it affects her health and her well-being. I can take it. Um, so just bash me. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, we all know BMX. I'm like a, I'm like a, a you know, I'm, I have a thicker armor. Yeah, I mean, we all know how ruthless BMX riders can be on the internet. Oh, they're, it's outrageous, man. I, I look at it, I, I can't even believe it. I, I'm just like, I'm just shocked. Yeah. But, I I mean, you you get a fair amount of of uh, criticism. Yeah, yeah, usually it's just for my hair or my handlebars. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, well, it's only been... 15 years of the same thing i think i can handle it well they or maybe the like the the extended uh like toothpicks oh the ice picks yeah well oh yeah is it an ice pick you don't yeah. do a toothpick version no two? no i don't do this oh, that may be time to you know change it up yeah i gotta learn <laughs> i mean just give them something else to hate on for a while yeah well maybe i'll just grow a beard or something and <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that's a whole nother conversation. Well, I mean, it's all the same thing. It's like, you know, you're, you're taking hate online from whoever and you just got to deal with it. Yep. And kind of, it makes you, I think it makes you a little bit, you know, makes you stronger. Oh yeah. I mean, you have, there's a certain extent of it that you have to have to keep you grounded as a person. If nobody ever says anything mean to you ever, Right. And you just let yourself inflate to this point of like, whatever, that's where you go off the rails and go completely crazy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read the S&M, you know, Behind the Shield book, but I tell a story in there about how when we first started S&M, I would make these flyers and I'd go to events, bike events, and I would put the flyers underneath people's windshield wipers and I'd hand them to people. And I was so hated at that time in, in the late 80s when I was starting. I was so hated by more of the kind of jockey uh, race crowd that a lot of times I'd hand the flyer to people and they'd crumble it up and they'd just throw it in my face. Boom. I'd take it, grab it off the ground, open it up, and go hand it to someone else. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I came into this business being hated. Yeah. But then there was a small group of people that really liked what I was doing. But the majority of people just hated me. They thought I was a loudmouth kid. I was a show off. I was a punk. I got all the magazine coverage because I was friends with all these people. It was just all, it was all BS. But, well, the, the loudmouth punk, all that stuff was true. But getting the coverage because I was friends with people, that was the BS part. I was getting the coverage because I was busting my ass. Yeah. And I was doing stuff that nobody else was doing. So I was working for it. Mm -hmm. As far as all the other, you know, being annoying and all that, that was, you know, true. But still, that was not enough to just absolutely hate on me and say all those other things. So I don't know. I'm no stranger to how this whole thing works. And generally speaking, when people, when, when, when people don't get what they want, they can either just be professional and go get it from someone else because clearly they're worth it so they can go get it from someone else or they can be a little baby and throw a little tantrum. Yep. 
And the thing is about this whole subject is that we don't really think about or pay attention to when someone's being professional about it because it's not thrown in our face the way it is whenever somebody is a baby about it. Yeah. And it's so bad nowadays, especially with Instagram and how immediate it is that I think sometimes people will post stuff before they even think about it, but then it's too late. Um, and yep. this goes all the way down to like, just, just like flow situations. Like I'm flowing product to somebody and that's it, but free product, which is expensive and we're shipping it to them for free. Yeah. And we're like on like call. If they're in a hotel, they're at a contest, they need something overnighted by the next day, we'll get it to them, you name it. And then we can't afford it anymore for whatever reason. And we feel like they're not, you know, making a big enough impact on sales to justify it. And then they lash out on social media. Like nobody ever, and then everybody picks it up, you know, then I'll talk about it on our BMX or, you know, whatever the, the monthly wrap up or wherever. Nobody ever said anything like, oh, oh, Moeller and company are hooking up so-and-so. But that doesn't even come up. But then when they, but then when they quit. I say it. Oh, you do? Good I talk you. about it. But anyways. I've always thought you were like, you know, more, you had more journalistic, you know, integrity than anyone else in BMX. But uh, anyway, you know, and then, you know, so so-and-so makes a post on Instagram. They're no longer, you know part of the S&M fit family. I'm like, well, okay. Yeah. Is that even necessary at yeah. that point? I mean, let's just move on to the next positive thing. Call up another brand, you know, that, that is more in line with what you're doing or that has more budget right now than we do. Just, and then leave on a positive note and then be friends with us. And then if that falls apart and then business turns around for us, we can hook you back up. Yep. I don't yeah, I mean, I don't know if people why burn bridges with anybody in a in a business that's so small. Yeah, I don't know, you know if people I'm realize head to head with other brands. Let me let me let me criticize other brands, but you're a writer. You should be smart enough to be able to bounce around if you have to. Just stop burning a bunch of bridges because you might bounce over here and then you might bounce back. Yeah. Close. Yeah, I don't know if people realize when they're making those posts that it also, it like is burning bridges before the bridge is even built because somebody might see and be like, well, I don't need that associated with me, so I'm just not even gonna let the opportunity be there even if it came no, up. And it, and it goes so many directions. Once you, you know, like I've been in this business since I was 12 year old, since I was a 12 year old kid, essentially. Yeah. and. You know, and you're gonna say, oh, F molar. Okay, fine. I mean, all I was trying to do was help you out with some free stuff, but F molar, that's fine. And the next time I'm talking to somebody else and they go, hey, what do you think about that guy? Like, that guy's an ass. Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? He's an ass. I wouldn't touch that dude with a 10 foot layback seat post. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just how it goes. Oh yeah, Burn Sorry, the unless you want me to lie and he's all, Oh, well, you know, he was okay. No, he's an ass. You know what? And you're my friend, and you, I've been friends with you for 20, 30 years. Yeah, he's an ass. Don't hook that dude up. He's a nightmare. And, and sure, I'm not friendly with some of the brand owners in BMX, but I am friendly with a, with a lot of them. Right. And we all talk. And I ask people, I go, how was your experience with that guy? And they go, oh, 
it was sweet. You know, we just couldn't afford them. You know, that like Cole Volker on, uh, when he was on uh, Sabrosa, they just didn't, you know, he talked to Shear. They don't have, they don't have any, but they didn't have any budget. They yeah. loved Cole Volker. They just didn't have any budget left. And so Cole called him and talked to him. They were super bummed. They didn't want to lose Cole Volker, but I felt like I had some budget and I had a place for him and we were able to bring him over and plug him into what we're doing and we love having him, but he did not burn any bridges at, at, uh, at Sabrosa or, or Shadow, I guarantee you. Ronnie's not upset with them. Ryan's not upset with them. He yep. handled his business perfectly. And then, you know, interestingly enough, he's the one that gets slandered in that, uh, in that um, Bonnell thing because Bonnell's claiming that, you know, Cole's getting where he's getting because of his dad. That's, that is idiotic, first of all. It's outlandish. Have you not, has anyone not seen Cole ride a bike? That's all no you one even knows do. who his dad is. No offense, Dave. I mean, like, I love you, <laughs> Dave. But nobody knows who Dave Volker is. Oh, yeah. I mean, all you got to you know do is see. And people that do are, like, doing wheelies on cruisers and shit. Yep. All you got to do is see Cole ride in one edit or a jam coverage or anything like that. Well, meet him. Hang out with them. Yeah. Watch him interact with kids. Watch him talking to strangers that he's never even met before. Anyway... Love that guy. And to say that he's getting where he's getting because of his dad is so outlandish. It's like blows my mind. It, yeah. it kind of reminds me of how, like I said, when I was younger and I was getting all the, the coverage in magazines because I knew all these people. I only met those people because they saw me riding my bike. Yep. Everything Cole Volker's doing is, is, is hap everything that's happening to him is happening because of what he's doing on and off the bike. Yep. You don't get and, to there without And the way it. he's handling himself is like, you know, he's like a model uh, rider, in my opinion, for how, how to handle yourself. You know, if, if things went sideways for S&M and Fit and we had to let him go, I guarantee you he would say, it was so cool being on Fit for the years that I was on Fit. And thank you to Chris. Thank you to Melissa and everybody at the building and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, unfortunately, all thing, good things come to an end. And then he'd move on to some other thing and we'd be friends. And if I turned things around, I could bring him back, hopefully. So that's the way to handle it. Yeah, and you've always been that way. That's what TJ said when I talked to TJ. He said, oh, Specialized came along. You said, go to Specialized and come back when it ends. I said the same thing to Stricker to go to Trek and come back. More or less said the same thing to Sean Butler to go to Schwinn and come back. Said the same thing to Freddie Chulo. Go to you know Gary Fisher and come back. That's the way you should handle things, you know. But again, you know what are you gonna do? But what are you gonna do? Talk about heat treating? Yeah, I mean that's a touch. The heat treating is a touchy subject. Nobody ever wants to really spill the beans on what they're doing. Well, you don't have to do uh, that. So the proof is kind of in the pudding. It's sort of like what, what's working and what's not working. Well, I can tell you right now that uh, I've been out riding with a good with a friend of mine that that worked at S and M and Fit at one point, and he nose cased a, a double, not even that big, like a ten foot double, and he just kind of nose cased it and bink fork in half. Terrifying. 
you know, he rolled out of it, no problem. Um, that fork was heat treated, but it was brittle. Yeah. I also, and I, I mean, I, that's just one time I'd seen that. Uh, I was at a contest one time with, uh, with Melissa and I went, to, we brought AJ and Naya who rode for us and him at the time. And, um, I believe it was Sandoval. Pretty sure it was Sandoval snapped his handlebar and cut it up the inside of his arm. No. That was happening a lot at one point. I don't know if you remember this. It probably would have been about, uh, geez, 2012. I feel like it was happening a lot where bars were snapping right above the crossbar and creating that kind of jagged point. I can envision that, yeah. And it was just, he came down. I think he did a flare, the bar snapped, and it came right up the inside of his bicep and just, oh. It was so, so brutal, but that was heat treating related. Um, so heat can make or break the the a part. I mean, it can make the part super soft and too easy to bend, or it can make it too hard and make it brittle. Right. So, can you give me kind of like the basic breakdown of what heat treating even is? I mean, you can get a lot of good information about just, you know, heat treating in general online. Um, but there's lots of different types of heat treating. You're, you're basically trying to use heat to change the qualities of the material. Mm. So especially if you expose the material to high heat, like a weld, like a, an alloy steel, like chromoly, like we're using a 4130 or any of these alloy versions, you know, alloy steel. You weld it, and not to get try and sound too technical, but when you weld it, certain parts of the metal, I believe it's the carbon molecules, they kind of move towards the weld, towards the heat, and you'll make that one zone harder and more brittle than the areas where it's not being exposed to as much heat. So there's a lot to be said for trying to weld carefully to where maybe you weld and small areas you do a you know a root weld here and then a root weld over here and then come back and do a root weld and another weld and then that way you're not just you know zapping that thing with a ton of heat in one area all at once mm-hmm. uh, so one form of heat treating you know you can anneal something in other words you can use heat and the cooling down process to sort of let those uh, carbon molecules kind of go back to their uh, to their original kind of um, makeup, yeah. so that you've relieved you know you're stress relieving the part, so it's not brittle in that area. Um, so you can anneal to soften. You can normalize, which is kind of put everything back to normal. You can uh, harden the part. I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do based on how you heat the part up to what temperature you heat it up, how you cool it down, and do you cool it down in a liquid, do you cool it down in air, do you cool it down in an oven that allows it to cool down at a certain rate. You gotta come up with all this stuff. You have gotta come up with your desired hardness, you know, at the end of the process, your Rockwell hardness. You also have to have a way to test it, but how do you test the hardness, you Mm -hmm. know? 
we have a machine at at SM and Fit where we cut little pieces of the metal off and we put it in the machine and we can crank it down and get the reading for the um, for the HRC or the you know the the Rockwell hardness. Uh, you can also send parts to the to the, uh, a testing lab. You know, a metallurgist. Yeah. There's luckily in Southern California, there's a lot of aerospace, so there's a lot of places that do that. And then you learn over the years, just from trial and error, what works. Um, so, is... but a lot of brands, you got to keep in mind, a lot of brands have very little control over these processes because they're getting a fork from, you know, the fork guy in Taiwan or the handlebar guy in Taiwan. And they're just kind of saying, hey, make me the fork that everyone's getting. Make me the bar that everyone's getting. And back in, I don't know if it was 2012 exactly, but whenever the budded bars started coming out, mm -hmm. okay, this this is just a good example of how things went badly. Um, the budded bars started coming out. Who who did it first? I mean, I I, I want to say it was Snafu. I'm not sure. So, you know, forever bars were just you know one straight thickness. gauge tubing, yeah, straight gauge tubing. Right, they're either 035, 049, 065, and, and back in the day it was unheard of, but 083 is the next material up. So, those are all stock wall thicknesses for many American mill. You know, 035 would be super light race, 049 normal race, 065 would have been like Fifi, that was the original slam bar, or 083, like I said, back in, in those days, that would have been unheard of. Um, everything was conditioned in chromoly, normalized chromoly, and you would weld the bar up and that was it. Okay, you wouldn't heat treat it at all. You didn't need to. So conditioning chromoly was good stuff. So somebody comes up with the budded bar, and I, again, I, I think, I don't know, I, I feel like it was snafu, but there was the 11 budded bar. In other words, the bar was like on the inside, it was thick, thin, thick, thin, you know, and so on. Yep. And then when you built, when you, when you built the bar, your thickest section was at the neural. Then you had fairly thick sections in the bend. You had thin sections on the upright, thick in the bend again, and then thinner. And then sometimes they went thick right at the end, so your bar end would fit. Okay, so this is like a tube that's drawn over a mandrel. And it was first done in Taiwan, and the, I remember going to the factory. It was called Juju, and I remember going there and watching this process. And because I wanted to order some budded tubing over there, bring it over here, and make budded bars with it. But here's where all hell broke loose with the budded bar. They made one configuration of budded bar that made like an eight by twenty-eight standard slam bar size, and then somebody wanted to make a eight and a quarter or whatever it was or, or like slightly different they started making slightly different size bars mm -hmm. and i think this is the same butted profile oh oops yeah and i think some of them were long like they started really long and they chop off the ends and or whatever but so anyway i think what happened was you ended up with some bars that were I don't know if it was by mistake or if it was because the factories over there wanted to use up the material they already made or what, but I think you ended up with the thin sections at the base of the bend, okay? Right at the base of the top bend. And then you welded the crossbar on too. 
So now you've got thin material and a crossbar joint, and you've got all the leverage of this big wide bar too. Remember the bars got bigger, yeah, wider. So now you got all this leverage, thinner material, and all the heat from the weld. Recipe for disaster. Exactly. So when it comes to heat treating, is this done in like a oven or what's it usually done in? Because when I picture it, I picture like a frame or bars or something getting chucked into a fire with hot coals. And that's just my image in my hey, brain. That's not far off, to be honest. You know, the trickiest part is how do you, it is an oven, it is flame. Okay. How do you get the part in there, rack it, hold it, when it becomes more malleable and it's hot before it cools again, how do you rack it or hold it so that it doesn't warp or get weird? Um, so that's a big problem. So, you know, people use conveyor belts, they'll use racking systems. There's a lot, everyone's got their own little secret way of doing it. Yeah. Um, but you don't see a lot of frames going in the oven. There's a lot going on in a frame. And so what happens when you got all these joints, everything's welded, there's like a lot of tension kind of built up in there. Mm -hmm. And then you expose it to a bunch of heat like that. And then the thing is, things is going to get crazy. So if it is going to get crazy, if you're going to do that and allow it to get wonky like that, then you're going to have to straighten it back out again. Mm. But if it's really hard and strong, how are you going to straighten it back out? Yeah. Well, it's almost like you need to soften it, you know, normalize it or kneel it, whatever, then straighten it. And then you gotta, then you gotta heat it back up, but hold it in a way so it doesn't get wonky again. So steel frames, you know, alloy steel frames, you're not going to see them being uh, heat treated very often. Aluminum, you have to, you know, so these guys that are doing aluminum frames, they have to do it and they have to go through all these processes to make sure you get a straight frame that rides correctly but on the frame like for us our material comes already where we want it so certain tubes come in certain ways you know you might use a a harder down tube than you would your chain stays so your chain stays might be conditioned in just you know sort of like middle of the road hardness and then your down tube might be much harder to make it more dent resistant, you know, for people that fall off grinds or hit mm. rails, whatever. Um, but bars and forks, you can you can heat treat those without you know having them go super weird on you. As long as you hold them or lay them or rack them or conveyor them or whatever you're doing correctly. Um, on the frame, we do we will heat treat dropouts though mm. uh, to an HRC of like a minimum of 35 and a maximum of 41. So that's like the, that's the tolerance that we call out on the certifications for our dropouts. And you want a really hard dropout, especially with pegs and smacking that thing on everything. Yeah, tightening it down and pinching the metal and just deforming it in a way that makes it unpleasant to work with your rear end. So you can heat treat a dropout and then tumble it, clean it up, and then put it on the frame without any problems because the dropout's flat. You know, you can. It's not going to get 
wonky in the heat treating process. Um, but I guarantee you, man, I, I'm more <clears throat> open with this information than anybody else is going to be. If you ask anybody else from, you know, any other company, especially companies that import parts from Taiwan or mainland China, like all of our competitors do, they're not going to tell you anything. Yeah. They yeah. may not, they may not even know anything to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I kind of, well, I mean, I don't want to get super crazy with details and reveal anything crazy like that. I kind of just want to like educate people on different aspects of heat treating. So like as far as history behind it goes, I mean, when's the first, do you remember the first time you heard about heat treating going on in BMX parts? That's a great question. Um, we made our first, well, we had our first frame made for us in 1987. Uh, everything on the frame was conditioned in chromoly, just normalized 4130 aircraft grade seamless chromoly that you could buy at you know, any steel supplier in Southern California. Um, then we started making handlebars shortly thereafter and forks at the same time as the frame actually. And all of this stuff was conditioned in, welded up, sent to chrome or sent to the painter there was no heat treating going on uh but there were parts coming even in the early 80s or late 80s from japan you know like tongay forks were heat treated a lot of times you get it's misleading because if you start with really low quality material really soft there's different schools of thought on this like if you start with a really soft material okay like annealed is what it's called and an annealed steel tube which is really soft easy to bend easy to form so if you're trying to put one of those weird like taiwanese dents in this in the chainstay for the sprocket clearance if you're trying to miter this thing but you don't want to use a cutting tool like we do you want to miter a tube but not with a hole saw you want to miter a tube with a with basically a wedge that just pushes through the material on a punch press you want this material soft you're, you won't wear out your tools. You'll get more parts, you know, per hour. And, uh, you know, you'll just have a lower cost of manufacturing. Now you have to heat treat it when it's all done though, because you just started with a bunch of soft material and you built a part out of really soft material and it was easy to make the part. You were able to bend it without rippling the tubing. You were able to miter it with the, with a punch press instead of a cutting tool. You ever watch those factory Fridays where we miter a tube and, and the whole saw is spinning and it sounds like they're cutting glass? Oh, dude, literally I was editing a clip of some type of tubing. It might have been for hoder bars or crossbar or something. Yeah. And, dude, that sound when that saw blade hits that material is it's definitely... probably a fork leg. Yeah, I'm not too sure, but yeah. So that's some really hard material that's hard to cut and you're not going to find that overseas like i worked in mainland china for years um and man it they're just done deal done deal yeah like it's that fast just a punch press and a tube and a wedge but boom done deal and like it's just like they could do 20 parts in the amount of time it probably takes us to do one part that's because the material is annealed and then you know when it's all said and done the part's probably a lot easier to bend, but maybe they make up for it by making a wall thickness thicker, 
maybe the welding kind of hardens it up a little bit when you weld that joint you're kind of you know you're kind of hardening the material by welding it uh so you know there was a point in time when i imported a bunch of material and made frames with it here and i did run into these problems because all that material was anneal that was like it was really soft and i didn't realize it was going to be that soft so now because we have our own testing machine we can get batches of material in we can cut off little pieces of it and make sure we're getting what we ordered and if we're not getting what we ordered we can make a phone call send have it taken back and get something else on the flip side we you can also get material that's too hard and when you try and bend it into a handlebar it just snaps i see and i got the whole batch of material like that from a supplier one time where you try to bend it into the bar and it just snapped so being hands-on and being there and watching it all get made you know we have a little bit more involvement in these processes and you know some brands do overseas as well especially brands that are owned you know Taiwanese owned or Chinese owned obviously they have a vested interest in the product because they're, they're there in the factory mm -hmm. but if you're just a you know a customer and you pop in for a little QC for a week here and a week there like I used to do it's tough because they can put on a whole dog and pony show while you're there and as soon as you're gone they're like okay go back to normal yeah and this man this really gives context and like quantifies the difference between overseas and usa made parts and frames like in a whole yeah. different way because people always say you know usa made is the way to go but if you ask them like why It'd be like, oh, because you're supporting the U.S. jobs or it's a frame, you know, made here in America, which is amazing. But everything that you just explained with the hardness of material or softness, rather, kind of makes it easier to understand, I think. Yeah, well, that's what you're getting. That's what you're getting for your money when you buy a not only an American made, let's say a frame, but a Taiwanese made frame. So, you know, the majority of BMX frames all come out of the same shop in, in you know, Taichung, Taiwan. And I've spent a lot of time in that shop because, you know, we've made a lot of fit frames there over the years as well. And so you're sitting there, you know, watching the BSD get made, you're watching the cult get made, you're watching the We The People get made, you're watching the fit get made. They're all getting made in the same place, out of the same material essentially. And they do a really good job, but those frames, in comparison to mainland China frames, which is what you're getting on the majority of your complete bikes, they're a lot more expensive. You know, the cost of doing business in Taiwan in general, probably about three times what it is mm -hmm. in mainland China, labor-wise and everything else. And so, you know, th that that's the difference between Taiwan and China um, a lot of times. Not that you can't do something really high-end in China, because you know, you've got people, you got machines, you have equipment. I mean, you have material. It's all the same kind of stuff if, if it is the same. Uh, but it's just a different expectation cost-wise, you know? Yeah. So I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these people that it tries to say that everything that comes from Taiwan is garbage because it's not. Right. But I'm also not going to say that everything that comes from the United States is great because it isn't necessarily yeah either but there are some constant things like 
being there all the time that you just can't replicate unless you're there all the time. Yeah, man, that's a really interesting part of that conversation that I'd never even contemplated before, to be honest. Yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, the like I said before, the proof is like in the pudding, you know, like who has the reputation? What have you been writing? What brand are you supporting and are they supporting you? I mean, when you write an SNM or fit and you have a problem, you're calling in and a lot of times you're just emailing me. Yeah. You know, we're not going to leave you just high and dry. I mean, if you're the 10th owner of the thing and it's 15 years old and it was made in Taiwan, yeah, you, you need a new bike, man. Right. You know, we get that one all the time. Oh, I just bought a fit. What's the serial number? You know, F10. Well, that's from 2010. <laughs> You, you know, like you need to throw that away yeah, and get yourself a new bike. I don't, don't recommend you go and ride that bike, you know, but if you've got an, a, you know, a frame that we made in our shop in Santa Ana, it broke, bent, whatever. Hey, send it back. We're going to get you the worst case scenarios. We're going to get you a new frame really cheap. Yeah. And that, that's why we've been around for as long as we've been around. And if there is a problem that keeps repeating itself, you know, we see it. And we're able to fix it and get on top of it. There's no disconnect between, you know, some guy that owns a factory in uh, in Asia that's making electric bikes half the day. And then he's making, I don't know, some kind of bumper for like a Jeep or something half the day. He's just trying to make some money. He wants to make a decent quality product to keep his customer happy. And his customer is the guy that's paying him. To me, the customer is the guy that's riding the bike. Yeah. That's the difference. Yep. You know, they're not concerned about that. They just want to keep their customer happy. That's the person placing the order. So I wouldn't say they don't care about their product, but it's not at the same. It's not on. They're not out at the spot when the kid snaps the fork. You know, when I saw my buddy snap the fork, I just thought, oh, my God, I hope that is not our fork. Like, please tell me that is not. First of all, I hope he's OK. But second of all, please tell me that's not our fork. It wasn't our fork. Yeah. And the really creepy thing about the fork was it snapped in a little hole that was shaped like a coffin. Huh. And I thought to myself, who puts a coffin in a steer tube? It's just two things I don't want, you know, combined coffins and steer tubes. Well, when you break a fork, that is like death is what you kind of are scared of because that is a. I watched a buddy snap a fork off casing, you know, one of the biggest jumps at our trails. And I was not able to see everything. So all I see is just him snap, tumble forward and roll. And you're just like, oh, no. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of this is like in the early days, you know, part of this is you don't always get what you ask for as a as a customer, you know. So say I'm, you know, brand X bikes and I want to order some forks from Taiwan and I send them a drawing and I say, hey, I want all the, you know, specs of this fork to be exactly the same as this fork from another brand. I want the hardness the same. I want the tensile strength the same. I want all the molecular you know qualities of this fork built into this fork and they oh yeah yeah whatever yeah we'll do that and then you get the fork and it's and somebody snaps it and then you go and have it tested and you find out you didn't get anything close to what you asked for um 
that happens. I mean, even when I first started SM in the early days, like maybe year one, I broke a handful of frames in like in public situations. One time there was a, a street contest in like 87, and I thought it'd be funny during the high air contest over the box. I thought it'd be funny to speed jump the box and stay as low as possible instead of like trying to do the big air and get the high air. So I pull up, speed jump the box, I overshoot the landing. I land on my front wheel, my frame snaps in half. And I just hit my face on the concrete, damn. And then I'm trying to drag the broken frame out of there so that you know people aren't giving me a bunch of crap about our frames being garbage. And then I take it home or wherever and I cut it up and we measure it in the top tube wasn't the wall thickness we asked for. You know, we asked for an 049 and we got an 035 mm. kind of thing, 028 or what I call 02 thin. So maybe this guy that was building our frames just had a bunch of extra tubing and wanted to use it up or maybe his employee just pulled it down off the rack because it looked the same and started cutting it up. Man, so much. You just don't, you just don't know. You know, as a, like I said, going back to the uh, scenario of owning Brand X bikes, and I order some forks from Taiwan, and I ask them to copy this, and I get 500 of them, and then a few of them start breaking and coming back, and then I take a few off the shelf, and I cut them up, and I have them tested, and they're not, you know, what you asked for. I mean, what a what a nightmare. But it's, it's got to happen in every industry, you know? Oh, I'm sure it has to happen with anything and everything that people get made somewhere else yeah so but i mean i know your the whole topic was heat treating and it is a little bit of a secret science nobody really wants to tell you exactly you know they don't want to tell you how long they put it in the oven to what temperature they brought it how long they cooled it down and by what method they cooled it down how they racked it how they fed it into the oven or out what they quenched it in you know like what kind of liquid they don't really want to tell you any of that. They just want you to recognize which brands seem to have good quality stuff and, you know, stick with the brands that you trust and, and don't ride apart too long, especially if you're really hard on it, you know, and then don't give it to your buddy after you've totally cooked it for yep. three years and just send your buddy out into the wild to smash his face. Yep. Like, what do you do with it at that point? You know, you kind of have to get rid of it or give it to a little kid or uh, hang it on the wall. You know, that's happening too. There's like so much stuff floating around. Now, who rode this? How old is it? Mm -hmm. How ready is this thing to just snap? Yeah, I just literally have a video uploaded to go live this weekend with uh, Mike Patozny because. He, he had just put an S&M frame and fork onto his bike. And so we did a little update talking about his bike because I did a bike check with him previously. And then after that, we go into the conversation of replacing parts and just talking about that for a few minutes. And it's super important because so many people you hear bragging like, oh, I've ridden this frame for 10 years. Like, no, stop. Yeah. And there's and there's things about your setup too that can have a big impact on it. I mean, all the stem spacers and stems just like hanging on for dear life. Yep. You know, and just the longer steer tubes in general, like your steer tubes up here, you got this big head tube, you got whatever, you got all the stack. 
and then you got the you got this big 35 whatever mil stem it's up here you got 10 inch bars like the 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 leverage on all this is like gone up a lot over yeah. the years yeah you remember you saw that video of that guy uh i don't know if he barred off that he like barred off that thing or like, like shack into a bank but he kind of landed on the top of the bank and his fork snapped off yeah and you look at the force on that and you're like man it seems really weird but when things break they don't break in like a they don't break the way you think they would break and we kind of figured this out over the years like testing forks and testing different parts weird stuff breaks parts mm -hmm. before your regular hit you know like sometimes a regular hit doesn't really break the part the way you would think it would but then something super weird does yeah it seems like a lot of times when you hear about somebody breaking something you hear that they got really lucky and it's like oh, i literally was just going down a two stair and hit and my bars or my frame the down the head tube cracked and you're like what yeah i mean that happens mm -hmm. i've had it happen i've done like a 180 down like three or four stairs and had my pedal boss snap off of a, a crank and it was like a really nice crank it's just Forces get put on parts in really weird ways and yeah. the thing might already be fatigued or it might have already had some kind of damage that you're not even aware of. Yeah, well, this is part of why the whole conversation that we had about the integrity of metal and how it's done during the manufacturing process matters so much because that's how you end up sometimes in those situations in that frame that you broke on the overshoot. If it had been the proper spec, it may have not broken. Right. It might have still broke. I don't know. It was a heavy nose case on flat, but I would have been better off with a little bit thicker top tube. And then I had a couple other frames and forks and fail on me back in the early days of S&M because things weren't, they didn't use the material I asked them to use as well. But I mean, no better way of learning how that all plays out than when your own face smashes the ground you know you get pretty angry at that point but the, the other issue too in our business is like the prices man the prices are pretty low mm -hmm. so manufacturers have to find ways to do things but you got to control the price because nobody can afford a you know a thousand dollar frame two thousand right. dollar frame you know and that's the thing where you start you start getting real specific about everything that goes on every step of the way. And then you got all these people online nowadays. They're all like, you know, they've always been uh, NASA engineers as far as I'm concerned. Like every dude built a space shuttle. Every <laughs> dude's dad is like, you know, honestly invented welding. It's insane. Yep. You know, and you're like, well, okay, well, then you do it. You do it. Why don't if you guys already built a space shuttle? Why don't you build a bike? Yeah. You know, because your bike's going to cost $80 million. That's why. Yep. And then no one's going to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> so what does that mean? It means finding cost-effective ways of getting things as strong as you need them to be. So, yeah, could our bikes be half the weight that they are if they were made out of, you know, huffmonium tubing or, uh, you know, uh, carbon fiber or whatever? Sure. But... Is anyone going to buy that? And do you really want to be the guinea pig that takes that out, you know, and, and starts testing it? 
Yeah, I know I don't want to be. You know, are, are we fine? Are we good? You know, where we're at, cost-wise, weight-wise, you know, the the ride feel of the bike. I mean, I love my bike. Yeah. Um, and I feel like people ride better now, and they ride better obstacles now. You know, jump landings are steeper now at the skate park and at the trails. So when when landings were like this, like they used to be, the bike took a beating. Right. Now the landing's like this. So you can be smoother. Less... You can be smoother. As long as you get over the edge, you're like you're coming in, you know, really smoothly. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, look at those old videos from the from the nineties. I mean, it was like Ka-da! Oh yeah, just brutal hits every single time. Just trying to get the trick done and then hanging on for whatever comes next. Yeah. I mean, are there, are you talking to anybody else about this, you know, heat treating specifically, or is this just something you're given just to me? No, honestly, this came up because in my uh, little group thing that I have, a couple of people started talking about heat treating and debating like whether or not it was necessary on BMX parts and just how it's done sometimes. And it made me realize like, oh, I have... A potential resource for somebody I could talk to about this and if, if it's a subject that people are interested in but don't know a lot about maybe we can just educate a little bit on this whole subject so that's really it yeah well generally speaking if the parts heavier you can get away without heat treating it say a handlebar for instance an 083 handlebar regardless of how big it is you don't really need to heat treat it. In fact, a condition in regular chromoly handlebar, I think you're way better off with an 083 non-heat treated bar because the bar's gonna give a tiny bit and if it does fail, it'll fail in just like a bend. Yeah. Like that, it'll just bend or tweak a bit. Now, if you wanna get really light and that's where the problems come in. The problems always come in when people are trying to make lighter parts right because then you want to use less material how are you going to make less material you know stronger you got to change its properties you got to make it you got to increase the tensile strength or the sheer strength you have to increase it by some way how are you going to do that most likely the easiest way to do it is by heat treating it um making it real hard but then you also run the risk of making it real brittle yeah that's something whenever i look at handlebar stuff and I compare to like, I'm, I'm pretty sure the bars I ride are 083. They're definitely really thick tubing. Well, what color are they? Black. Oh, they're black. So a lot of times you can tell your bar's not heat treated if it's a trans color. Oh, I got you. Well, I mean, just whatever size tubing that you guys did when you made those bars, I think is what Carl ended up doing moving forward when he started. It was doing probably, it. yeah, 78083. Yeah. And. You can just tell, and then I look at some of these bars when people have them, and they have four-piece bars, and you can kind of see the thickness because it's an open-ended tubing. It just, it looks, it's like fingernail thick, and you're like, that just seems, I'll take the extra weight. It just seems like that's scary. Yeah, I mean, I per, I have all my own personal um, feelings about stuff like this. You know, I really have always stayed away from thin walled stuff that's heat treated 
and chrome plated, yeah. to me, that's like just the worst combo. You know, because you take a thin walled tube and then you polish it and you remove a tiny bit of material and then you send it to, you know, get plated or you weld it up then you send it to get plated. They polish it again. They might remove a tiny bit of material again. Then you chrome plate it, which, you know, is exposing the material to like uh, to chemicals, different chemicals and things like that. I personally, I, I, if I'm going to do something thin walled and heat treated, I'm only going to get it painted. Yeah. And we, we try to steer clear of plated thin walled heat treated parts and heat treated parts are real difficult too, because you have to remove that scale off the part. Mm. So sometimes you see in factory Friday, take a, a heat treated pitchfork, like some are heat treated, some aren't different models, but take the heat treated pitchfork. You've got to build it send it off have it heat treated you got to get it back it's covered in this scale you have to remove the scale then you then you zinc plate it so that this not chrome plated but you zinc plate it which is very thin so the steer tube doesn't rust and then you have to mask it off and then you have to paint the paint the legs it's a lot of steps man that's why when you look at the cost of a fork and it's 200 plus dollars and you look at a frame and it's 500 and you think man size wise a fork should be less or the frame oh, yeah. more. It probably the frame should be more to be honest. The frame should probably be 700, 800 bucks at this point, but we're just, we love not making money. And, <laughs> um, you know, 16 to 18 year old riders don't have that much money. Right. Yeah. That is a super deep, another conversation to have. Um, so, but it's interesting to hear you talk about how there's, there's, an argument to be made for not heat treating parts because I feel like there might be a misconception. I mean, I was a victim of this misconception that just heat treating equals better. But in reality, from what you're saying and I'm learning right now, that's not always the case. And that's really interesting. Well, it depends on what you start with. You know, like if yeah. you start with material that's good, then it may not need to be heat treated. If you start with material that's, you know, really, really soft, yeah, it's probably going to have to be heat treated or you're going to have a part that just is like a, it just folds up like a like a wire coat hanger, you know? Yeah. So I guess the lesson for other people would be like seeing the word heat treat or seeing the words heat treat doesn't always mean like what you think it means. And the real thing you should be looking into with it is like what it's made of. I mean... Do you ever know what's really going on anyway? From companies where you don't see, you know, people like yourself or things yeah. like that. I, I mean, you can't, I guess. You just have to believe what people are saying and that they're I mean, being look honest. At these brands. Look at what brands are. You just come up with whatever you want. You say whatever you want. You know, you could say, um, you know, you know, more tubing. Yeah. You know? You know, there was a mountain bike company back in the 80s. They had Moron Tubing. It was like, this is my favorite tubing uh, marketing name. So every brand has a marketing catchphrase for their tubing. Mm -hmm. When in, in actuality, 90% of it's all the same stuff from the same shop even. But they all have a different name for it. But it's all the same stuff. So this company had Moron Tubing, which I thought it was, I thought it was so funny. But what it meant was it was double-butted. And there was more on the end, <laughs> which is so good. So it was moron. 
tubing. But they were kind of saying that back then, like, look, you can say whatever you want. You can call it whatever you want. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. I mean, does this company make good stuff or do they not make good stuff? And how do you know that? Because your friend had one. It was really good. You've had two of them. They've been really good. And then somebody had a problem with it, but they called in and they got it replaced and the dudes hooked them up. And that's a company you want to do business with. And that's a company you want to support. Are you just going to go out on a limb and buy some product from some new brand because it's in, uh, you know, a purple speckle and it's got moron tubing? I don't, I don't know. I mean, you got you to gotta wait around a little bit and see, is that stuff any good? And how do you know? Because yeah. they can call the tubing whatever they want. They can call the heat treating process whatever they want. There's no heat treating or sticker on the product police out there making sure that, you know, what you say is true. You know, it reminds me of people that get so mad when I, I'm honest about our complete bike spec with fit. And I'll say like, you know, chromoly front triangle and then high tensile steel like stays and rear end and then people lose their minds. I could have just, I could easily just say it's all chromoly like mm. tons of people do. Yeah, it's all chromoly. Are the chromoly police going to come and like knock on my door because I called the back end of the bike chromoly and it's not chromoly? No one knows. Yeah. Who's going to know? You're going to know because the bike's going to be flimsy, you know, and fold up like a beach chair. And then you're going to tell your buddy those bikes suck and then nobody's going to buy them. So in the end, it doesn't really matter anyway. Yeah. And high tensile steel. It's like high tensile steel is not bad. High tensile steel chainstay and seat, seat stays on a complete bike that's imported is not bad. We're not talking about like, um, you know, the steel that was on bikes 20 years ago. High tensile means it's stronger than regular steel. Mm-hmm. Mild steel. You know, mild steel, which the whole bike used to be made out of, was really soft. High tensile steel, it's got a higher tensile strength. So it's better steel. Chromoly is a steel. It's just an alloy. So it's got other things mixed into it as well. So steel is not bad. Chromoly steel, 4130, is a better grade of steel. Condition in is better than, you know, an annealed steel tube. So steel in and of itself is not bad. High tensile steel is better than... Um, like I said, mild steel. But again, you're going to get all these people just freaking out in the messages saying that's all BS. But it's not BS. And anyone can slap a sticker on anything that says it's all 4130 chromoly. And in a lot of industries, they look at 4130 chromoly and laugh. Like, what in the hell are these people using? You know? Mm. We could make a better frame out of this. Yeah, and the frame would be $3,000. Yeah, man, this is all this is educational for me because I was definitely one of those people who's when I talk about complete bikes and recommending things, I have always said like if you're going to be doing like real stuff and really dedicated riding, trying to go high in the air and you're going to buy a complete like full chromoly everything is the baseline. I agree. I agree with you on that, but I'm just saying that how can you trust people to be telling you the truth? Well, this is what I'm learning right now is that like me just blindly saying that is kind of like, I mean, I've just, I was just falling victim to what you're talking about in that. Do you want to, 
do you want to enlist and be like, do you want to be the first member of the Kromali police? <laughs> I no. I, so we get the bikes, oh. different brands, we cut them up, and we send them to the lab. Oh, geez. See, it's that gonna, would be cool. It's going to cost you maybe three, four hundred bucks a bike to have it tested. But yeah, you buy the bikes, you cut them up, you send them to the metallurgy lab, the testing lab. They send you back the report and you go, hey, so-and-so, your bike's not chromoly. If I had the money, I would do it tomorrow because that but would... Obviously it doesn't, but what I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter. Brands either make good stuff or they don't make good stuff. And generally, you're going to get what you pay for anyway, yeah. you know? So brands that make garbage are gone. Yeah, they don't last. Or, or they're about to be gone, you know? I mean, who, so if you're not, if you're making good stuff, especially for the price point and you're supporting it and you're backing it with your customers, you're going to stick around. I mean, like we've been in business for 35 years. If we were making garbage and pawning it off on people by saying it was, you know, Huffmonium tubing when it wasn't, we'd be gone by now. Right. That's true. Yeah. Nobody lasts in anything by being anything other than what they say they are. Right. And yeah, you might get a bad batch, like brand X might get a bad batch and then they're, they're pissed because the, they didn't get what they ordered. And then they find a new supplier overseas or they try and shore up the whole, you know, situation somehow by getting one part out of every batch and having it tested or doing whatever they can. But people that care or trying to do the right thing are going to continue on in business and deal with these little messes that get created along the way. And then people that are just trying to pull the wool over your eyes and, you know, basically just take your money and give you a bunch of junk are just going bye-bye. Right. So I don't think there's anybody out in BMX, especially now that business is so tough. I don't think there's anybody out there that's just making, you know, garbage and trying to pawn it off on us. But um, there, actually, there's a couple. They're okay. just not mainstream BMX like core brands. Well, that's what I mean. I don't oh, even okay. pay attention to all that other junk. Okay, so as far as core brands go, yes, I would agree with you for sure. But, I mean, what are we talking about? Like a big box store brand, like a Magna? Just something, yeah. They, like like how Framed tries to pawn off that they're making real BMX bikes for a cheap price, but they're just total garbage. And what is this? Is that like a brand that's owned by a big retailer? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Okay, I know what you're talking about. I've never dug into their stuff. You know, the stuff that I've bought over the years, and I haven't done it in probably a year, but, you know, I've bought a fair amount of, uh, or brought in a fair amount of products from other brands and cut them up. And we've, we've been doing this since day one. I mean, we just get other people's stuff, we cut it up, we figure out what they're doing, make sure that, you know, we're, we're all, you know, we're, we're there at at least, or better, obviously, is what we're shooting for. But we've been doing that for years. And it, and I throw that stuff out, but yeah, I've cut up, I've cut up a lot of frames over the years. I've never cut one up from that brand. I gotcha. I mean, I try and find people that are like our competitors. Right, we're, yeah. We're considered to be like real competitors. Yeah, I think anybody who learns about like the real BMX industry and real I keep saying real, but like companies who actually yeah. care about the culture of BMX, those kind of people are not buying those types of bikes. No, they're really not. Um, and you know, and the other thing is like, 
when you travel around and I haven't been going to Taiwan, I haven't been to Taiwan since COVID started, but prior to COVID, I was over there three, four, five times a year, every year, especially since we started fit. Like when we started fit in, in 99, I started going to Taiwan every couple months. And I did that all the way up until COVID. So the last time I checked my passport, you know, I was like 50 or 60 trips. Jeez. Yeah, like I'd been going a ton for a long time and that was just my latest passport. So I probably had a bunch of my previous passport. I was over there all the time. So when I was over there, I'm seeing all the other brands because everything's made over there. So I'm seeing everything that all the brands are doing. And that really kind of kept me on top of where everybody else was. And what I was noticing a lot of times was they were just copying our stuff. I would go into shops and find our products there. Mm. American-made S&M and Fit products sitting in a welding shop in Taiwan. And I would pick it up in the meeting and say, how did this get here? Yeah. Because somebody from one of the other brands sent it there and said, we just want this. Yeah, you know? that's crazy. And a handful of guys that work at the other brands all used to work for me anyway. Mm-hmm. So they know exactly what, they know exactly how I think, you know, like, I've been friends with Ronnie, or I, I wouldn't say we're like, you know, friends nowadays, but I was friends with Ronnie Bonner back in the 80s, and he watched me start S&M. He came to our house in the 80s and watched me start S&M. Obviously, I've, I was friends with Robbie since he was a kid, and he worked for me for 10 years. I was friends with Neil Wood. He worked, you know, with me for 10 or plus years. So a lot of these guys at a lot of these other brands Ben Ward, Ben Ward worked with me for a long time, you know, before he went to, uh, where is he at now? GT. Yep. Um, and I worked with a ton of these guys like Rich Hirsch. That's that stranger. I worked, you know, he worked with us, tons of guys in this industry. Zach at kink used to come out and stay at my house sometimes in Huntington beach. These guys have been around S and M since before they even started bike brands. So they know the blueprint. But I don't know. So when it comes to like giving advice on people buying things, now that you know you just you you don't know what someone's using to make something. Like how how do you recommend people to decide quality when we're buying something? I mean realistically if you're on a big if you're on a huge budget you know, I'd probably go to the hardware store and get a kink curb for 99 bucks. <laughs> I don't know if you could do that anymore, but there for a minute, you definitely could. Yeah. I mean, that bike probably cost kink 120 bucks unit before they put it in a can and paid 11% duty to the government. And now you're buying a retail for $99. That's the steal of a lifetime right there. Yeah. But that just sucks. That whole situation sucks for everybody. Sucks for Kink, too, because they lost their ass. Yeah. And then bike shops. It sucks for bike shops, too, because they have a bunch of bikes. And now they're competing with a hardware store. Yeah, I don't know enough to really be able to talk about that situation other than just what we saw happen. Yeah. But in general, what I would do is I I would only deal with core brands that are that have been around for a while you know, 10 plus years, hopefully, um, 
And then I'd buy them from a reputable dealer. You know, if possible, I'd buy them from an actual bike shop built up, ready to roll, you know, so that if you had a problem, you could bring it in, they can help you dial it in. That's what I would do. If you're really mechanically inclined and you're good at working on stuff or getting videos off YouTube, yeah, you could buy a bike in a box and build it yourself and go from there. But uh, for me, I would start with a reputable brand. Um, I would try and get good value for my, for my buck. I wouldn't be, you know, unreasonable and start sweating all these crazy details. You know, it's a $399 you know, bike. You're not going to get a, a, you know, $1,800 build quality out of every single component on the bike. Right. Yeah. You have to get very lucky and find something used that somebody is giving away to have that happen. Right. But I would, I would, if you're new to the sport, I would go to a bike shop and I would get the help of people that really knew what they were talking about. Yeah, that's. And I'd deal with reputable brands. And then, you know, or I'd listen to my friends and what other people, you know, have to say. Maybe go to the local park, see what people are riding and, you know, do that. But uh, I don't know. I would look, I would listen to that kind of uh, word of mouth a lot more than I would the marketing that's being, um, you know, pushed in your direction from the company that's trying to sell you the product. Which makes total sense. Even when you look at stuff outside of BMX, that makes sense. Yeah. Like we talked about before, you know, the A headset on these bikes, like Fit Complete Series 1s have the A headset on it. And some people get so angry about the A headset. And and, and I don't know if I explained it before, but it's not really the cost of the headset that bumps up the price of the bike so much. It was the machining of the, of the head tube. Did we talk about that? I think How so, yeah. Get in there and machine those 45-degree angles on the insides of the head tube. Mm-hmm. That's what costs you know, the money. So people freak out about that. But honestly, you, you know, anyone could make the best bike ever and sell it as a complete bike. But it'd be like 1500 bucks to 2000 bucks, and nobody would ever buy it. And very few people would be able to afford it. Nobody would be able to get, no new person would be able to get into the sport. Yeah, yeah, if that was the only option. Because, yeah, there are a couple companies that do that and offer, like, a fully aftermarket bike as a complete bike. But it's catered toward a very specific individual who's buying it. We did that with Fit years ago. We did a Fit, uh, a Wi-Fi complete. And it was, I think it was $1,200, which is cheap for what you got on the bike. I mean, it was double walled rims. Everything was sealed and 48 spline, nice cranks, 19 mil at the time. Uh, Everything on the bike was aftermarket. It was an aftermarket frame, aftermarket fork. Everything on the bike was like high end, but it was 1200, maybe, I don't know, 1300 bucks. And we did like a couple hundred of them and and that was it. I mean, there's a very limited market for that because people that are that knowledgeable want to build their bike from scratch. Yep. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And I've seen, you know, a few people leaving comments on my stuff where I talk about bikes where they're saying, oh, I bought this complete, which is the all aftermarket one. And it's just that very, very specific person who might have ridden as a young when they were younger and then coming back into it and that was the bike so that, oh, I don't want to necessarily build something because I don't know what I'm looking at yet, but I want to get something real and legit, so I'm just going to buy that. Yeah. I love the scenario where people go to a 
a, a Powers bike shop or Empire or Circuit, one of, you know, a shop like that, like a really core shop that has a, some people in there that know what they're doing mm-hmm. and they do the custom build. Yeah. I love that. But you get all the parts you want and then they assemble the wheels. You know, they start putting it all together. If there's some little issue with the seat post, you know, the seat tube and the frame wasn't reamed all the way, they have the tools to fix it. They know how to, you know, get the headset in there. If there's some weird little burr, they can get it off. They build the whole bike and, you know, that I love that scenario. Especially if you're somebody that has a job or you're going to school or you have a bunch of other responsibilities and you know, you've got a budget and you go there and you talk about it and they start building your like dream bike. Mm-hmm. I love that scenario. That That's how, you know, that's how I would handle it if I, if I was in that situation. Um, luckily, I'm, you know, old and my bike, I don't have to change my bike more than every three or four years <laughs> at this point. You know, I'd change the tires out and geez, grips and occasionally like pedals, but that's I'll ride the same bike for years at this point. Yeah. I've conditioned myself to just be paranoid about that. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing about this business that's really interesting is like we've just year after year, we've been trying to improve everybody. Every brand has been trying to improve everything just constantly. Mm-hmm. But now we've got ourselves to the point to where you can just have one bike and you have a bike for a year, two years or whatever. So yeah. you don't have to replace the parts. It's not like when I came up in the eighties, I mean, I had to replace parts cause I was breaking them on a weekly basis. Yep. Yeah. We hear about that whenever it's talking to people like you and anybody who was riding at that time, talking about one piece cranks where both cranks are facing the same direction. Oh yeah. Down. They're both facing down. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, bikes were just garbage, but and now they've gotten better and better and uh, you know, it's tough for business. It's good for riders, it's good for the consumer, it's tough for the company. The company's gotta keep it fresh if they, you know, new colors, d- different reasons, like why would you even get excited to go get a new bike, you know? You need you need some reason. And then you just start making up weird improvements that aren't even improvements. That, that annoys me about mountain bikes. I feel like they do that every year. Oh yeah, well I mean, mountain bikes seem to have just such a different demographic of person buying them that it doesn't matter oh yeah i mean one year there you got to have 29 inch wheels you know in my 26 rides pretty good Mm -hmm. nope gotta have 29 inch wheels so then you get 29 inch wheels oh no 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 no. those are too big now you got to get 27 and a half what happened to the 29 oh they're too big so now you're going 27 and a half. Mm-hmm. What next? You're going back to 26? Because I never I never quit. I still have a 26. Yeah. So that just gets on my nerves. Yeah. BMX felt like it did that when the free coaster thing came in and literally everyone got a free coaster because it's like, oh, you have to have a free coaster. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, we, we started putting free coasters on quite a few fit completes. And now we're kind of backing it off. I mean, we're down to two models with a free coaster and that's it. Mm. And we're probably going to even back off of that too, because the free coaster is just, it's not really, uh, it doesn't go over real good with an entry level bike customer. Yeah. And 
that's the thing is it's got to be somebody who knows what they're buying because if you get just some random 14 year old who doesn't know what a free coaster is and they jump on that bike they're gonna bash their knee and they're just not gonna fully know how to ride it right off the rip oh no i then then you get the email oh, i just bought a new bike and my pedals are you know my cranks don't lock in place they shake back and forth and then you go what model did you get oh, i got like free coaster oh man yeah um on sort of a similar note of all this stuff i kind of just want to give a little love to those guys who their frame was in the video last week for factory friday Max, oh, Cole, and uh, Milky. Yeah. Yeah, it's just talking about fit because that's an, as, when's the, I mean, the nasty frame has been talked about, but when was the last time, you know, a brand new fit frame came out? Well, I mean, American made fit frames. Uh, we did the sleeper, which is Ethan's frame, yep. but it's got a pretty unique geometry, which some people love it, but some people find it, you know, a little bit too unique for them mm -hmm. he's got a longer back end kind of a steep head angle tall head tube it's great for like the stuff ethan does and some people absolutely love it like spreet loves that frame um and they're great frames like we make them right in the shop but it's not your kind of more middle of the road geometry uh the heartbreaker frame chris hardy's frame that thing's low and long kind of raked out again like Aiken's riding that. He loves it. A lot of the trail guys love that bike, but it's not a like a all around kind of bike by any means. It's sort of like a trail, high speed trail, high speed park kind of frame. Yeah. Um, other than that, what have we done with fit? We did the imported frames, um, the mixtape and the shortcut. Those were made at that shop in Taiwan where all the other frames are made. Like I was with the investment cast parts because mm -hmm. um, we can't really do investment cast parts here in the States. So I wanted to like take the opportunity to get some investment cast drops in different parts. So that was the mixtape and the shortcut. But yeah, Fit's been kind of, uh, we haven't had a lot to offer in the frame department for a while now, to be honest. So this Young Buck is pretty cool because it's, it's that geometry that most riders that do a little bit of everything will ride. Yep. Whenever I heard Milky talking about the geometry of it in there, I was like, yeah, that is definitely right in the middle of the road where it could be used really on anything. And, and it was cool. And then to see all three of those guys get colors on it was sweet. Well, the interesting thing about it was we were working with all three guys individually, but what they all wanted was basically the same. Mm -hmm. They were like a tenth of an inch off here or there. Like Cole runs a little bit longer back end than Milky does, but you can get Cole's back end out of that frame. Oh, yeah. And Cole didn't want to ride a – because I always throw it out there like, hey, we can make a signature this, and then you can get a custom that's a little different. But he didn't like that. He wanted to be able to tell a kid honestly – out in the wild that the frame that he was riding is the frame that you can buy. Yep. Which is, you know, that's respectable. Oh yeah. That's kind of the way it should I, be in my eyes. I mean, yeah, but I mean, through the years it, it hasn't always been like that. Right. Sometimes, it you know, like so-and-so has got a signature frame and then you roll up on him and you go, Whoa, 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 what's that? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And then it's always, you know, oh, it's a prototype. It's a sample, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> But this is a guy that rides like a 14, 
you know, and a half inch back end. Something Who's no gonna one's going to buy, buy a bike with yeah. a 14 and a half inch back end. Right. Nobody. So you make him one and then you got to make something that other people might actually want. And some people are in a weird spot like that. Dugan's in a weird spot like that. Like his fans, what his fans want to ride is different than what he wants to ride. Yeah. So what do you, that's a tough situation to be in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. It, and that's, that's kind of where that comes up. But to have that whole situation of, no, I want to ride this bikes because I want to tell people this is the one that you're going to buy. I think that's just really cool. Yeah. Well, that's what we're doing. Nasty frame. It's, it is what it is. I mean, that's the frame that he's going to ride and we're making those right now. Actually, um, we're building those nasty frames as we speak. Um, and the young bucks were working on those as we speak too. uh, just kind of getting the pre cause we can do a lot of work on these frames, like make the head tubes, make the bottom brackets, make the dropouts. We can make a lot of the small parts that go into the frame before we're even 100% on the geometry. Like if those guys all get together and go, Oh, we actually want the head angle a tiny bit steeper. We can still do that. Yeah. So we are kind of in the, we're 99% sure that's the frame, but if somebody has something to say, we, there still is time to make a tiny change, but I doubt that there's going to be, I, what I thought was more interesting actually than the frame was the handlebar because uh, the, what the guys wanted handlebar wise was not the same, but it was so close that we were able to find a middle ground on every dimension. Like if one person wanted a 2.5 degree upsweep, and the other guy wanted a, like a, you know, two degree up sweep. We were kind of met in the middle, like a two and a quarter up sweep. And so that was pretty interesting that the three guys didn't all want the exact same bar, but it was so close that we were able to make it one bar. Yeah, it's pretty wild that those three guys with such different styles all wanted very similar things enough to where you could come to that compromise and everybody's stoked. Yeah, I think of the three, like I think Milky's the most particular. Cole's Cole's pretty close to as particular as Milky is. I think Max is a little bit less uh, of a, a techie uh, part guy. Like he's not going to sweat you on a half a degree of upsweep on the handlebar. Mm-hmm. You know, um, handlebars have been interesting over the years, especially with heat treating. We've gotten a lot of other brands' bars in, put them on our little alignment table. And a lot of bars aren't even symmetrical and you would never even know it. You know, like a lot of bars are up more on one side than the other or pulled back more on one side than the other, but only a little bit and you would never even really know it. Mm-hmm. Bending a handlebar, for, doing four bends and keeping the thing symmetrical is kind of a pain. Oh, I can only imagine to keep something completely perfect like that. That's why I'm always so amazed even – when I see the factory Friday stuff and they're like the one example from recently was where he put the uh, fixture thing up into the fork and was checking the clearance on both sides of it as if it was a 2.4 tire and and swing it through and they're just perfect. That's always so impressive. There's another fixture for all the parts for the frames, the forks and the bars that we never show in factory Friday. But I was thinking about that, that we should, that is more of an alignment table where it has all these sliding blocks and mm-hmm. everything on it to make sure that everything's. So by the time Thomas gets the fork and puts that 
check gauge in it, it's already been on another table to make, basically make sure it was perfect. And then that was just like a final, you know, like the one thing about forks with that thing, he's not necessarily, what happens with forks is that the dropouts are the problem. So if one dropout's like a hair higher than the other dropout, when you put that thing up in there, it'll go crooked. Right. And you see that sometimes with a frame or a fork and you always wonder if the frame or fork is off or if your wheel's dish wrong. And it can be both. You know, like you can get a front wheel, even a custom made front wheel from somebody or buy it off the shelf and it's not dished. Right. Center. It could be dished off to the side a tiny bit and it's straight, but their truing stand might not have been centered. Yeah, or they didn't use the actual thing that measures the wheel alignment. And if it's the frame dished, alignment. Yeah. Or like the wheel alignment gauge, you yeah. know? Yep. That goes on there. Yeah. And then you put it on the other side, which you can get from Park Tool. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> the WAG yep. 4. Uh, yeah. Or the, or the frame. What's the frame called? The frame? The frame alignment gauge. Oh, is that? I didn't know there was a frame alignment gauge, too. Yeah, there is. The frame alignment gauge presses against the side of the bottom bracket shell, mm. and then it comes around, and then it presses against the head tube, and then it comes. Yeah, pull it up. The frame alignment gauge. I'm working Basically, on it. Basically, you right put it now. on one side of your frame, and then flip it around to the other side of your frame, and if it doesn't touch your dropout, the same on both sides. <laughs> God stick. damn it, Chris. <laughs> there right? it is. Yep. That's an inexpensive tool too, actually. Fifty bucks. What's Fifty bucks? Yep. So back when I first started, that tool didn't exist, or if it did, I didn't know about it. And we used to use string. So oh. you could tie string around your dropout and then bring the string up around the bottom of your head tube and then take the string back to your other dropout and tie it and then measure from the string to your seat tube on both sides. Mm -hmm. And it would tell you if your frame was like just slightly bent to one side or the other. That's really interesting and I should probably make a video about that just so people can see if their bike is crooked at all. Hey, if you're like having a problem manualing or whatever, normally someone could ride behind you and just and tell you for sure, like your bike is just not straight. Yeah. You see that all the time because people ride so hard nowadays. What bent? The frame, the back end might have twisted, the fork might have bent, the wheels might be, like I said, dished off center. You never know. But if your bike's manual and funky, doesn't just doesn't feel right, the whole thing could be cockeyed. You know? Right. Totally makes sense. But I mean, yeah, we used to use string and then the, the park tool is good for that. We have a whole table for that, which I've never shown on Factory Friday, but we should. Um, you know, it's just all, this, all the fun stuff that goes into making bike parts that, you know, ride well. Yeah, it's pretty amazing just what goes into that whole process. And I feel like just being able to have conversations with people like you about that process can teach people why it's important. Like I just learned a whole new reason today for why American made frames are an option and something that people should consider just purely based on knowing what they're getting 
material wise right. and how it was actually constructed. Yeah, that's a huge bonus of what what we do in U.S. for sure. Yeah, it's not all about just some patriotic thing. Um, although, I mean, I feel a lot better about doing business with Taiwan than I do with mainland China, to be honest with you. I, if I never did any business with mainland China from here on out, I would be fine with that. Yeah, I, honestly, I didn't realize how broken up things were between uh, BMX manufacturing between the two of them. Yeah, well, what happened is, you know, a while back, business owners from Taiwan were somehow lured or enticed in some way to move to mainland China and set up factories. And that was really uh, appealing to companies in the States because Taiwanese people are much more exposed to Western, you know, things than Chinese, mainland Chinese people are. Gotcha. Um, and so they move their factories to mainland China and the advantage of moving to mainland China is the lower cost of labor because you're talking about maybe a third of the cost of labor. So they could bring all their equipment and everything over to mainland China and then start working over there and they can be more competitive price-wise and using the same Taiwanese you know, quality standards that they had, still build a, a high-end product. So that was kind of the, that was kind of the lure of um, the allure of uh, Chinese mainland Chinese manufacturing for BMX, but now that things are getting so are getting so funky politically, I think all those people are trying to hightail it back to Taiwan as soon as possible. You know, they don't want to be in mainland China, and I I don't really want to go to mainland China myself, to be honest. But I, I'll go to Taiwan all day. I, I love it there. But uh, you know, if we can do it in the states, I would rather do it in the states. The problem is. You just can't do everything here, you know? Yeah. You, you don't make rims here. You don't make seats here. Tires. You don't make stuff here. You don't make tires here. You don't make tubes here. Not very. I don't know if any BMX pedals are here. Well, those Yoshimura ones those, are. The, those might be the only ones. And those are, what, $160? Yeah, they're, they're up there. They're sweet pedals, but they're expensive. Yeah, I agree. They're made right in Southern California. In fact, the guy that Ken Harris that works there used to work in our shop. He started our shop oh, with wow. me back in back in like 90, late 90s. Ken Harris started this machine shop with me. He worked at GT, then came to work with us, and now he works at Yoshimura um, in the R&D department over there. And I have another friend, Eric Bartolis, that works over there, good friend of mine. So those are great pedals, but yeah, they're almost 200 bucks. Yeah. So why is it that we just don't have tires or other pedals or things like that made here? Well, I, I don't know if you remember the old props, but on a Road Fools, we went to Sun Rims, which was in Indiana. Okay. And they were making the rims in Indiana. There's only a few holdout companies left. You know, Sun threw in the towel. Probably cost of doing business was too high. So they moved or sold the brand or did something, moved it to, to Taiwan or China. So Sun over there. But at one point, Sun Rims were made right in Indiana. Um, I went there. It was awesome. But you could tell it probably wasn't going to be there long. Mm. Um, Profile's a holdout. You know, how long Jim Alley is going to be doing that and Sun Quarry. I mean, they've been in this business since the 70s. Right. I mean, when Jim started that, the bike division of Profile, he was doing car stuff in the 70s. 
I mean, that was one of the original frames that I used to model the original S&M after was a profile frame. Mm, I got you. How long are they going to keep doing that? Yeah. And, and if they're not doing it, who is? Who's going to do what they're doing? And offer that stuff at the price that they're offering it. I can't even make a set of cranks for how much profile sells them to the dealer for. I've tried it. Can't do it. Wow. So I don't know how they're doing it. They've just done it for so long that they've amortized the cost of that tooling and they've got it so, they're doing it so efficiently that they can sell you those profile cranks for the price they're selling them for blows my mind. Right. So it's cost prohibitive why we don't make things like tires and other stuff here? It, well, tires, environmental concerns, mm. inner tubes, environmental concerns, seats, environmental concerns. There's a lot of uh, foam and adhesives. Anytime you're talking about rubber, which is petroleum, and you're talking about adhesives, you, it's a mess. Yeah. You can try and start up a factory that involves petroleum products and adhesives at this point in time. Good luck. And if you are, you better be making like a seat for a Tesla and you have to sell the seat to Tesla for a thousand dollars. You know, you're not going to make a bicycle seat. I gotcha. So it's a lot of things. And that kind of business is probably even going to get more difficult in a place like Taiwan. So then you go to mainland China it may be get may get difficult there as well. Then it'll go to Vietnam and then it'll wind up in India. And pretty soon you'll be getting your BMX seat and tires from India. It's just going to keep going down the line to where environmental regulations are a lot more relaxed and labor is cheaper. Hmm. So that, that, that's where it goes. So one day you're going to have to figure out how to make seats and tires from something else because everywhere have gotten super strict. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about plastics, adhesives, foams, and petroleum products. I mean, when you go into like a tire factory or an inner tube factory, more so than the tire factory, when you go to the, the factory that makes the inner tubes, it's just, you can't even believe it. I brought Jason Ball, our shop manager, over to Taiwan a couple times, and we went into an inner tube factory, and he was out of there in like five minutes. You know, I'm in there for the long haul for whatever it is, the whole hour of the visit. And he was in and out in five minutes. And when I went outside, I said, well, man, what happened? He said, I feel like I'm smoking a rubber cigarette. <laughs> I mean, it's got to cut years off your life being oh, in these factories. I can't imagine. It's not pretty, but there's no way you're doing it in the United States. Just no way. Yeah. That's wild. But, you know. What are you going to do? I don't know, man. I, it's, I don't know. I just love talking about this guy's stuff because I learned so much that I never knew. I mean, I always assumed it was like cost prohibitive and then the environmental stuff just makes sense. But to hear like the real reasons why this stuff is done the way it is, I, I feel like oh, it's such a good thing to hear. And people learning the most they can from people like you is awesome as a resource. Yeah. I mean, it's at the end of the day, I mean, cycling in general is just a great thing, but like any, anything that it requires equipment and the equipment isn't always, you know, the easiest to manufacture or cheapest to manufacture or, or even environmentally sound. I mean, geez, look at a surfboard, how, you know, making a surfboard is terrible for the environment, but then everybody equates surfing with being outdoorsy and very into nature and blah, blah, blah. But making a fiberglass surfboard is like 
an environmental nightmare. But, you know, it's just a good argument for maybe researching, you know, alternative materials down the road or making the board last longer or whatever, you know, it's that kind of thing. But, um, you know, interestingly enough, last week I was in California and we went to a chrome shop and had a meeting with this guy because what's called hex chrome or hexavalent chrome, which is what we've always done, is being outlawed at the end of the month. So you can't get hex chrome anymore, but there's this new type of chrome plating that supposedly is better, has a better look, is more durable, and is way better for the environment. Mm. But what is the cost going to be like? That's kind of the next question. So I brought him a handlebar, and we've been paying $19 to have a handlebar, a raw handlebar. Just bring in the bar, hoder bar, right? $19. The guy polishes it up and then chrome plates it, like $19.50. And the price has been the same for, for you know, a while now. Now it's $40. Jeez. The guy wants 40 bucks to do the bar. That's just to plate it. Wow. $40 just just to plate it for one you know, and, and then after you put the regular margin on that for us to make money and then the bike shop wants to make money your 40 ends up being a hundred or more on top of what bar what chrome bars aren't so now you're looking at like $200 handlebars bars that cost more than forks yeah, I mean, you know, the people love Chrome. How much do they love? Do they love Chrome that much? Yeah. Well, that's the conversation because it feels like eventually Chrome, unless we figure out that better for the environment thing, yeah. it felt like Chrome was just going to go away entirely. Yeah. And, I mean, there's people who are going to pay that extra money for sure, but... Wow, I never would have yeah. expected forty. Well, we had the so Jason and I were in that meeting the other day, and we had the back of the truck loaded up with handlebars, and we thought we had heard from somebody that this guy was going to do this new process, and he would do the whole thing. We thought we were going to get him around twenty six, you know, and like I said, we're at nineteen fifty, something under twenty, and uh, we thought we were going to get it for twenty six, and so he ends up at forty. And he was like, so are you, do you want to just leave all the bars here? I said, no, <laughs> no, we can't do that. We got to, we got to talk about it, you know? So I got to work it out. Are people willing to pay that much money for a Chrome part? Well, there's one person, Chemo Armstrong, I'll pay more for the Chrome. <laughs> oh, he will? Yeah, I guess. Can you give me his, can you shoot me over his information? <laughs> I think he'll probably I'll get just one, duck. one bar. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get one for him. Well, I'm sorry I couldn't be like more specific about temperatures and times and quenching, you know, methods and that kind of thing with heat treating. But like I said, it's it's so all over the place for every type of part, and everybody's got their own way of doing it. Our main focus is getting the end result that we want. Yeah. And I don't know what other people are doing and I don't I don't really want to get embroiled in that whole uh, giant debate with all the NASA engineers out there well you know? I wasn't even looking for the super specifics I just kind of wanted to learn more about like what heat treating is and why it can be important you taught me why sometimes you shouldn't heat treat stuff or why it's not necessary and and so yeah. I guess I, f I feel like we talked a enough about like the process itself in 
what happens that I think it was educational enough. And so S&M, you guys do have your very specific heat treating process that you guys do to get your result. And that's part of what makes the stuff what it is. Is that what happens? Yeah, that's exactly right. And we have three, funny, I'm looking at three different like certification sheets right in front of me. Mm -hmm. And they're for three, different types of parts. So I have, we have a fork, basically like a recipe for forks. Okay. When we want to treat forks, we have a different recipe for, uh, handlebars. And then we also have, you know, our, our own recipe, which I touched a little bit on with the HRC minimum maximums on frame dropouts or, uh, on frame dropouts. And so, yeah, so I've got three different certs for those types of parts. Um, but like I said, uh, a lot of times if, if you can get away with, uh, if you could, if you've got good material from the get go on say a handlebar and the wall thickness is sturdy enough, you really don't need to heat treat it. That makes total sense. It's pretty cool yeah. to hear and that. And I feel like in the last few years, we've been seeing less and less of those catastrophically failing brittle forks and the brittle butted bars. Have you noticed that the butted bar thing is almost a done deal? Hmm. I guess I hadn't paid a lot of attention to know that. Yeah. The butted bar thing's not really what's happening anymore. Maybe, uh, in racing, you know, we do some butted bars still, but you have to be very careful about the design of the bar and you have to put the thick parts in the right places, you know? Yeah. Well, with racing, those, those guys ride bikes that they know that if they crash, their bike might just blow up. Yeah. And they do. I mean, you see those forks snap off, those carbon forks just snap oh, off. Yeah. Wheels just going crazy. Just, yeah. It's wild. It's, it's, I'm actually surprised that they've stuck with a traditional two piece chromoly bar still hmm. at the at the top level the bigger guys you know the kids yeah they're running carbon aluminum whatever but the the pros still seem to be running some people do the bulge you know the 30 mil bulge thing at the bottom mm, uh, gotcha, yeah but tapered bar but yeah there's you know sometimes if it's not broke why, why fix it you know yeah so i guess i mean i feel like We've had a really good talk about heat treating and all these other aspects of what everything we talked about from industry stuff to parts and manufacturing and, and all of that. And I think it's been pretty educational. So I appreciate the time yeah. once again. Yeah, you're welcome. And like a like a little uh, after school special. Yeah, basically. And it's after school time right now. Um, I do want to say now that we're to the end of this, thank you. I want to publicly yeah. say thank you for everything. Just You're it, welcome. It's been pretty awesome so far working with you guys. No, it's been it's been a pleasure, man. It's uh it's some it's it's great, especially in times when there's so much negativity and and, and feels like a constant uh, war, you know, on our end. It's nice to have something that actually you know you've been helping me with a little bit of product development stuff and and also with you know some marketing stuff and just it's been. It's been really a pleasure, to be honest. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have more of it. I hope so, too. So thank you. And uh, everybody, hopefully you guys learned right. something. Yeah. All right. Have a good day, everybody.
You want money, you got to hit me up now. Leave Melissa alone. <laughs> That's right.